If you have your Bibles with you this morning, the whole month, we are going to be in the book of Acts. Now, oftentimes in Pentecostal churches, we read up until Acts chapter 2, and then we stop. But this month, we're not stopping at Acts chapter 2. This week, we are going to talk about the first missionary journey of Paul and what we can learn from it. The second week, we're going to talk about the second one. And the third week, the third missionary journey. And then in our final week, we're going to talk about the desire that Paul had to take the gospel into the unknown. This month, the goal is the following. So you can change the name of a church, you can rebrand everything, but only the Lord can do the work in our hearts that needs to be done. See, in my nature, I am called to be a missionary. But the Lord called me to come back to New England. And the reason he called me to come back to New England because the fires were starting to die out in our churches. The sacredness for God's word was dying out. The spiritual vigor was dying out. As I would come year to year, I'm thinking, well, it's great as a missionary that the Lord is moving where I am, but the churches that I've known all my life, they are dying out. God did not call me to come for this place to die out. God did not call each and every one of us to be part of a work that is dying out. So by the time we get to the end of this month, I pray that each and every one of you would not only be called to be a missionary to New England, but that the Spirit of God himself would fall upon you and commission you for the work that he has in store. This morning, before I preach the message to you, I do want to talk to two different groups within the church very briefly. The first group of people that I would like to stand up this morning, if you were born and raised in New England, please stand up. I love all of you. Take a stay, stay standing. Don't move yet because I got to talk to you. You guys, this is the place that we were born. This is the place that God determined from before we were in our mother's womb that we would grow up. This is the place that needs to be one for Jesus. And God knew that you would be born here for a reason. You are the local yokels. You are the ones who know the terrain, the territory, and the language to reach the people. We're going to give it our all. New England for Jesus. Let the place that we were born and raised in come to know Jesus like never before. You may be seated. For those that were not born and raised here, you get to stand up now. Let's see your faces. Those hailing from other countries, who is not American born? Raise your hand. Let's see you too. Look at that. And be proud of that. See, God put you here for such a time as this. He brought you out of your country to this place. He brought you out of the state that you lived in. And I'm not just talking about the state, but also the state you lived in. And he brought you to this place called New England, where the people can be a little rough, where we can act a certain way and be a certain way, but God called you to be a missionary to us and to do a mighty work, and we need you. 
the New Englanders, we need you to help us reach our friends, our family, and our neighbors. And so God bless you and give you all that you need to do the work alongside of us. You may be seated. See, the goal this morning is not to create tribalism between the New Englanders and the non-New Englanders. It is to show us that God has called each of us for a time like this. God knits together men and women, young and old, people of all different, different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, and he does it for one purpose, that is, Son Jesus be glorified. That's our task. The sermon this morning, well, they're taking journeys in the book of Acts, and if you grew up in the 70s, you might interpret the title a little bit differently, but the title this morning is called Trippin' for Jesus. See, God isn't a God who's sedentary. God is not a God who's latent. Oftentimes, growing up in New England, I heard people say the stupidest things. Oh, well, God is not moving. Oh, those New Englanders, they're the frozen chosen. New England is a difficult place. New England is the minister's graveyard. But to make matters worse, when I went to Holland... Even the Dutch and others said the same thing about the Netherlands and about the Dutch. You know what I've come to believe? Wherever I am as a child of God, he is moving. Wherever God is, he is moving. And we have a choice. Either we are moving with Jesus or we're not. See, in the book of Acts, you didn't have a bunch of Christians. They were waiting for the green light to go. I've heard believers all my life, oh, Lord, I'm just waiting for the revival. Lord, I'm just waiting for you to move. Lord, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. They are going to wait until they're in the grave. See, in the book of Acts, they were not waiting for the green light. When the Spirit of God came upon them, they had the green light, and the Spirit of God had to say to them, okay, stop, stop, wait a minute. See, God works more in the red light than he does in the green light. We're always so worried about making a move. As long as you are not sinning, you're okay. God isn't going to be mean to you. Oh, should I go to this town and tell people about Jesus? Should I take this job or that job? God doesn't care. Oh, wait, Pastor, where are you going with that one? We get so rigid, rigid and uptight and set in our ways. And the Spirit of God shows us in the book of Acts that God is a God who is on the move. And either you move with him or you move against him. I'm moving with him. Where he moves, I move. Where he goes, I go. We'll trail back to this in just a moment. The book of Acts chapter 11 Verses 25 through 26 shows us the very beginnings of the first missionary journey of Paul. Acts 11, 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who is now known as Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. See, the work that God did in this particular church in Antioch was unique. It was the first time that the church was leaving the comforts, the traditions, and the mono-ethnicity of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the church is launched into a different demographic place. The people look different, they sound different, 
and where God is moving in Antioch, guess what? There are people that are Jews and non-Jews in leadership. There are men and women in leadership. There are young and old in leadership. This church looked a lot different and sounded a lot different than the church in Jerusalem. And because the disciples of Jesus knew that where God is going, we want to be with them, they decided that they were going to go and invest their time into this church that was burgeoning with life because the goal was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so they were catching wind of this. One of the names that's mentioned here, Barnabas, he was the son of encouragement. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. But the man they mentioned by the name of Saul, who we're going to be following this month, who became Paul because of his conversion, he had had a radical encounter with Jesus. He was a man who was called the Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning as a Jewish leader, his job was not only to execute justice, but to actually execute Christians. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr, gave his life for Jesus because he believed in him. Saul, who was named Paul, sat on the sidelines. As Stephen was stoned to death, he nodded his head before they even chucked a stone at him to kill him. But see, Stephen prayed the prayer just like Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there was something powerful in that prayer because all of a sudden, as Saul was on his way to Damascus to go kill some Christians, all of a sudden, like the morning light, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to him, and he was a changed man. Because of his reputation, the early church, they tucked him away for a little bit. It was probably for a period of three years after his conversion, they tucked him in a little cave. They didn't want the Christians to go kill him, they didn't want the non-Christians to kill him either. But all of a sudden, as the Spirit of God began to move upon this new church in Antioch, they said, let's get him out of that cave and let's get him teaching and preaching in this new church. And all of a sudden, as Barnabas and Paul are ministering, the Spirit of God begins to move more and more and more. It says to us in the text, this was the first place that these people were known as Christians. See, their identity started to change. They weren't just Christians because of culture. They became Christians because of their own actions. R.C. Ryle said the following, millions of people profess and call themselves Christians whom the Apostle Paul would have not called Christians at all. See, why am I so adamant about this Bethel, New England deal. Well, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. And for people that don't understand, Providence, Rhode Island is the least Christianized city in all of the United States. I was the only believer most of my life in school. My teachers openly and publicly made fun of me for believing in Jesus. They mocked me, they ridiculed me, they would try to sway me away, even from the call of God on my life. That is the environment I grew up in. But thank God for spirit-filled, on-fire believers. 
Thank God for family and friends that press through the coldness and the, the hard times of New England, and they genuinely believed in Jesus. See, if you want a real Christian in America, and I mean a real deal Christian, find a Christian in New England. And you know what I mean by that? There are other places in the United States that Christians up north think, oh, it's so wonderful. The people are always like, oh, God bless you. God love you. Bless your heart. They are as fake as all get out. They know how to play the game. They know how to go to church and sleep around with every guy under the sun after the service. They know how to preach the message, but they don't know how to live the life. But give me a Pentecostal Christian in New England, and I will give you a genuine man or woman of God. See, the real deal. And that's what I love about New England. You are what you say you are. And if you're not that, you're not trying to be that. What you see is what you get. And see, that's what I want. I want to, what I see is what I get. I want to see genuine conversions. I want to see genuine deliverances, genuine healings. I don't want to just be part of Christian culture. I want to follow Jesus and have others follow Jesus with me. And so this first missionary journey teaches us three important things that help us to be Christians. Firstly, this early church had what we refer to as prophetic sensitivity, hearing and obeying the voice of God. See, that's something unique about being Pentecostal. And the church tradition that I originally grew up in, they would say, God is not a God who moves or speaks. When the book of Revelation was written in 100 AD, God stopped speaking. God stopped doing the supernatural. But I remember being a child, and I remember thinking, but where is the Jesus of the Gospels? And then all of a sudden, when I was exposed to Spirit-filled people, and I started to see the gifts and the move of the Spirit in Providence, Rhode Island, I began to see that Jesus of the Gospels was with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I began to see that the God of the Bible was not irrelevant for our time, but that the God of the Bible was relevant for the needs of this day and age. He's not just the God of the Old Testament. He's not just the God of the first hundred years of the church. The God of the Bible is alive and well. He is speaking. He is touching. He is healing. He is delivering. Jesus is alive. He is more than alive. And when we believe in him, when we line up with him, he is capable of doing amazing things. And all we have to do is say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. See, in the Old Testament, there was a time period where the voice of God grew dim, where it seemed dark, where the Lord wasn't. It seemed like he wasn't speaking. But all of a sudden, there's this little boy by the name of Samuel. God had heard his mother's prayer for a child. She dedicated him to the Lord, and as a little boy sleeping next to the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord spoke to him in the night, and this little boy said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God is alive and well. He is speaking to New England. He is speaking to us. He's alive and well, and all we have to do is get in that prayer closet with them and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. 
Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, shows us of the importance of listening to the voice of God and hearing what he has to say to the day and age in which we live. It says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Spirit and predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Agabus, he wasn't just looking at the Old and New Testament, and yes, we need the Bible. Be grounded in the Word of God. If you say God doesn't speak to me and you don't read your Bible, you're not doing the right thing. But God also knows how to speak to your day and age. See, I have a family member, friend of my mother's sweet woman, and I mean no disrespect in what I'm about to say. But once in a while, growing up, I would just, I say all the time, certain people I scratch my head, now that I'm older, I scratch my beard. And this aunt, as sweet as she was, she thought God does not speak modern language. He speaks Old Testament King James. So when her car was broken down, instead of saying, Lord, fix my car, she'd say, Lord, I need you to fix my mechanical chariot. <laughs> God understands that we drive vehicles. God understands that you and I live in the United States of America. God understands who's in political positions. God understands the life that we live. He's not separate from what we're going through. He is intimately involved. He is acquainted. And he is still moving and working in the midst of all of this. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. See, as Bethel, we are listening to his voice. Lord, what are you doing? What are you preparing us for? Help us to move from A to B to C. See, things I think are unique. Some people, they operate in what I call the pathetic and not the prophetic. The pathetic is you're seeing things and they never come to pass. That's the pathetic. The prophetic is when God speaks and rolls it out right in front of you. You see a direct result of a vision, a dream, a word, an angel that appears, whatever way he speaks to you, you see a concrete move of God come about because of that. And so moving in the actual prophetic is the following. Do you realize as a church, right before we went into lockdown, do you know what the sermon series was that we went into lockdown with? Lessons from exile. As if God didn't know what we were about to go through. There are other things that have happened along the way that we as Bethel can say we've seen the hand of God. Another thing that God has done, and there are many things that he's done, I'm just naming a few, but even something of bringing pastors John and Bertha to us as Bethel, leading them to come and minister here. We had done demographic research thanks to Anna and uh, Hoopner and her company that she works for, just trying to see what we can do as Bethel Christian Church for our community. Within a 30-minute driving radius of Bethel, in the next three years, one out of every four people will be Spanish-speaking people. One out of every four. Tell me, the Lord doesn't know what he's doing. Tell me the Lord doesn't know what he's preparing. Those are just some ways. But I want to tell you as Bethel, it's not only us that need to hear his voice. He wants to speak to each and every one of you. To lead you in your daily lives. To be able to stop reacting 
according to your flesh, but responding according to the Spirit. See, when things happen in the world around us, we should not be looking around surprised. The early church was not surprised when things happened. Why? Because it was prophesied that it would happen. They were not taken by surprise. They moved with the surprise. They were the surprise. They were ready for what God was doing. Van Tavner said the following about people who get a little bit too stuck on the pathetic versus the prophetic. He says, I know that some are always studying the meaning of the fourth toe of the right foot of some beast in the prophecy of Revelation and have never used either foot to go bring men to Christ. I do not know who the 666 is in Revelation, but I know the world is 666, and the best way to speed the Lord's return is to win souls for Jesus. Church, let's not get stuck on stupid. Let's hear the voice of God. Let's not wait, 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 but let's go, 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 go. The world is in need of him. We don't need to wait for the green light. We've got the green light. All God wants to do is breathe life into you. And we've got churches, they fight about all kinds of things. Oh, but what's your interpretation of Revelation? Who's sitting in the White House? Who's doing this? Who's the governor? Who's this? What's our money worth? We are messed up. The need in the world is a deeper need. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The next thing that this church became attuned to as Barnabas and Paul began to travel is not only did they need to be prophetically sensitive, they needed spiritual awareness. If you have your Bibles with you, let's look in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. It says, And they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, there they met with a Jewish sorcerer. Isn't that, that's an oxymoron, by the way. A good Jewish person is not supposed to be a sorcerer. A Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was also an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimaeus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimaeus and said, You are a child of, a de of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. See, this early church, as they were moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, they realized something, that the world in which they lived was a spiritual world. Just like we believe in a God who is on the move, there's a devil who's also on the move. And when you, as a believer, don't line yourselves up with a God who is moving, guess who you're moving with? When people say, well, I'm just standing still, no, you're not. You are still moving 
Through the principles of inertia, you are actually moving, even when you're standing still. Your little microbes and your little atoms and cells, they are in motion. But in the spiritual world, even when you don't realize it, there is a war going on. Do you know that there's a war going on for this church? Do you know that there's a war going on for you? Do you know that there's a war going on for your family and your friends and your neighbors? But in New England, it's not a war like it is in other countries. It is a silent, bureaucratic war. That's the tactic of the enemy. He knows, New Englanders, that we like to be quiet. We don't like to say too much about certain things. And when we do give our opinion, we berate you with it. But he's moving. He's moving in the systems all around us, and he wants us in New England to be awakened, to realize that there is a battle that is going on, that sometimes we can't see it and we cannot hear it. But see, when that battle goes on, because guess what happens? When you begin to preach Jesus, guess what? The enemy gets nervous in the service. Religious people get more religious. Demoniacs try to manifest. Come on. See, when I was in Rhode Island, the church that we were part of was a moving, grooving church. Non-Christians were getting saved every week. Prostitutes, drug addicts. We had the Baptists coming in that didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and bam, they got it. I was one of them, and so are you. We had the Catholics coming in, and they were, they were all over the place. We were like, oh. Our staff meetings, we would have to ask questions like, how are we, well, I'll tell you a funny joke, don't get too mad at me. In one of the staff meetings we were talking about, there was a woman who had gotten saved, but she used to be a stripper. And so when we would dance before the Lord at church, she didn't know better sometimes. And so the leadership just kept saying, how are we going to help her? What are we going to say? I said, well, we'll just throw some dollar bills at her to get her to stop. <laughs> that didn't go over too well. I almost got fired that day. I meant it. See, when you are a church that is moving with the power of the Holy Spirit, it gets messy. It gets dirty. People come in and they're not all put together. They don't dress the way you dress. They don't talk the way you talk. They don't look the way that you look. But those are the people that Jesus wants you to reach. And guess what else happens? The dark spiritual world comes in complete opposition to what God is doing. But from when I was little, guess what I saw happen? Christians, afraid. Afraid, a demon manifesting. Oh, we're afraid. Oh my gosh, I didn't sign up for this. I just thought I was going to church and have a nice service. I just thought I could buy the merch and drink the coffee and go home. No, it is a spiritual war. And when we saw person after person coming to know Jesus, the devil was not happy. Demoniacs would come in during the service. People would try to speak in tongues, but they were not the tongues of Jesus. They were the tongues of the devil. I remember vividly our senior pastor running through the middle aisle and saying, in the name of Jesus, be quiet. And that woman, it looked like someone grabbed her, pulled her up in the air, and shot her down again. And she shut up. See, I believe there's power in the name of Jesus. 
When these disciples were up against the forces of darkness, they knew greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. See, the devil is not our rival. The devil is not an equal opponent. The Bible shows us we are seated with Christ in heavenly places above principalities and powers and rulers. We are seated with Jesus. We are equal with Christ. Stop putting yourself on the playing field of the devil as if he has power, as if he, even Christians, oh my gosh, no. Don't be afraid. Take authority in Jesus' name. See, these guys that were there, they took authority. This man that was trying to reverse the salvation of this man that was coming to faith, they would not tolerate it. Do you know the enemy wants to bring down the people that you want to lead to Jesus? Do you know that there is a spiritual response that you are supposed to have when people are coming to the faith? See, when God is moving by the power of the Holy Spirit, you should not be checking your phone and eating your gum and throwing a mint in your mouth. That is the moment to engage in prayer. Anytime we have an altar call and the altars are flooding with people, you need to be interceding because the devil wants to rob people of all that God wants to bring to them. When you're leading people to Jesus, people are going to come at you. When we were overseas in the Netherlands and we were doing certain outreaches, we were outside doing this drama piece. There was a man that came to us and he kept saying to all the men, I want to have sex with you. So anytime you were moving, you had to make sure that this guy was not behind you trying to molest you. I'm serious. There is a real devil out there. You have authority, but do not sleep. Wake up and be dressed in the right clothing. Be ready, in season and out of season. John Broger says the following. He says, as an obedient believer, you are to stand firm in the strength of the Lord, to be sober in spirit, and to remain alert in order to resist the schemes of the devil. However, in all areas of your walk as a believer, you are incapable in your own strength and insufficient in your own resources to overcome the wiles and the temptations of Satan. Therefore, you must put on the full armor of God to be an overwhelming conqueror in your continuing spiritual battle. Come on. The other day, when we were talking outside, one of the people we were talking with said their family member just recently went into the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And so when I mentioned it at home, one of my kids said to me, they said, Dad, like, why does Israel, why do they need to have a defense force? And my wife and I, we looked at them, we said, do you understand? Every nation around Israel wants to kill these people. They want to drive them into the sea. That is what they say in Arabic to the Jewish people. So why does Israel need a defense force? Because they have a threat every single day. Well, more than a nation and a people, as Christians, the threat is real every single day. When you get out of your bed and you go to school or work, understand that you are in a spiritual war. Every family holiday you go to, understand you are in a spiritual war. Every public transport you get on, you are in a spiritual war. Every Sunday you get to church, you are in a spiritual war. Get dressed. Get dressed. 
get dressed. Every day, get dressed. This morning, when you came to church, did you look in the mirror? I hope you did, otherwise you'd have toothpaste on your nose. Spiritually, get dressed. And I know that we've learned ritual prayers. I call it the Pentecostal rosary. Oh, Lord, I dress myself today with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the blood of the belt of truth, the buckle of It is not a mantra. It is standing in the full awareness that Jesus has given you all that you need to stand firm in the midst of every spiritual attack. And don't believe anything different. The devil is a liar. He wants you to think you're dead in the water. No, he's dead in the eternal lake of fire. You're not dead in the water as a believer. And the last area, when God begins to move, you get what I refer to as disoriented disciples. Yeah? We have this word now that we're using in communities. They call it church hurt. When pastors or leadership, when they do things, and they're, they're mean people out there, don't get me wrong. But I've told my church this, and I am dead honest with them. Before I ever became a pastor, and I say it on purpose, I already had a career of my own. I was already an accomplished individual. I don't need the ministry to make myself feel good. There are people that use the ministry, and that is their power in life and power over other people. I do what I do out of a sense of calling and deep commitment for what Jesus has done in my life. Anything I am doing, I'm not sitting in an office twiddling my thumbs thinking, how am I gonna hurt the people that go to my church today? But it's easy to become disoriented. So in the book of Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it says from Pharaoh's, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what happened, but John Mark jumped ship. As Paul and Barnabas were traveling, he decided, I can only get to this point and I can't go any farther than this. I'm not willing. And as God is moving and doing things, guess what it does? It unsettles us. It, it brings us out of that world, our comfort zone, our safe spaces. And so John Mark said, you know what, guys? I'm only going to this point. I'm not going any further. And for whatever reason, he did what he did. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, when Barnabas says, John Mark, he's back in the game. I'm taking him with me. Paul and Barnabas get into such a heavy argument that they split ways in the ministry. That's how bad. So we don't know what John Mark did, but it was bad enough that Paul and Barnabas duked it out over him. But see, what I love about God is he's a God of restoration and he's a God of the full circle. Even though John Mark became disoriented in everything that was going on, eventually when Paul is writing, he says, send John Mark to me. He's been extremely valuable to me in the work of the ministry. People might be hurt, they might be disoriented, but guess what? God is in control of their destiny. God is in control of what happens in their life. See, oftentimes when I would see God move, even as a missionary overseas, we saw amazing things. We genuinely did. In a two-and-a-half-month period, we saw 55 Dutch people, Europeans, get baptized. 
In New England, that would be a big thing. Picture 55 people getting baptized in two months here. We'd be like, whoa, whoa. Do you know what people said to me there? Pastor, we don't like coming to church. We don't want to see people get baptized. Pastor, the church is growing. Even though they had prophecies and everything, Pastor, we don't like coming to church. Someone took my seat. Pastor, we don't like coming to church because the people are coming from other parts of Holland. They're not from this town specifically. And then as the church began to grow and we sent the people from the demographic regions out to plant other churches, then people were mad at me again. Pastor, I can't believe you're sending people out to plant churches. You're leaving us behind. We could never do it right. See, I'm aware of what change does to people, but I'm a new person. And the new person inside of me says this, that where God has placed me, I am confident of one thing, that he's going to do a good work. And either you're on board or you're not on board. But Mr. Capelli is not in control of your destiny. If you want to jump ship, that's up to you to jump ship. And I bless you in the name of Jesus. And my hope is that one day, whoever has left us as Bethel, that they will be valuable to us in the work of the ministry. Let God boomerang it and bring it full circle. But how does this happen? If God is moving, why is there hurt and why is there pain? George Barna, the famous Christian statistic, statistician, said the following. In the midst of the emotional and spiritual upset that occurs when a church hurts or disappoints us, we tend to lose sight of the fact that the local church is merely a collection of people on a challenging journey. A group of people that are involved in a long-term transformation process. We are a work in progress. You are a work in progress. Please understand that. Keep that in your heads. People are going to be people. They're going to have their moments. They're going to get upset. They're going to feel better. They're going to roll like the wind some days. They are just being people. They are just processing and going through their thing with Jesus. But let God do his work. Let God be God in your life. See these people through the eyes of Jesus and just bless them. Bless them in Jesus' name. Bless them along the journey in Jesus' name. And lastly, this morning, Martin Luther King, a man who brought about great change in the United States of America at the cost of his own life at the ripe age of 30 when he was assassinated, he said the following. In his essay, Self-Reliance, Emerson wrote, Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. The Apostle Paul reminds us that whoso would be a Christian must also be a nonconformist. Any Christian who blindly accepts the opinions of the majority and in fear and timidity follows a path of expediency and social approval is a mental and spiritual slave. Why do I close with these words? It's the boomerang of the sermon. We started with saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? In Antioch, they were called Christians. And I said, the Apostle Paul, looking at some people, he wouldn't call them Christians today. What does it mean to be a Christian in the day and age that we live in? It means to radically follow Jesus no matter what. 
even if public opinion, even within the church says the Bible is not relevant, guess what? The Bible's relevant to me. Even if the popular opinion within the churches, we don't need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? We need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And if the popular church says, oh, we're just trying to fill our pews with people, I don't want to fill pews. I want to make disciples. I want to see people equipped to do the work of the ministry. And lastly, this morning, like I started, if God is moving, I'm moving with him. If he's going there, I'm going there. If he's going there, if he says duck, I duck. If he says jump, I jump. And I am sick of it. After 41 years of being a believer, I am sick of being told as a believer to live for Jesus and other people don't do the same. I'm done. Recently, when we went with our staff, we had a day with one another, and this will lead us into communion. I said, guys, we can change a name, we can rebrand, we can wear a hat. That doesn't, I can't change the heart. I said, and before we have to ask a church to change in mission, we need to change. I'm never going to ask you to do something I'm not willing to do. And so I challenged them with a text from the Old Testament. When the children of Israel need to leave and they need to go into the promised land, they had never fought a war in their life. They had only gotten manna from the sky. They didn't plant. They didn't know how to harvest. But all of a sudden, God was leading them into that newness, and they needed to leave the wilderness behind. They needed to leave their slave mentality behind, and they needed to take hold of everything that God had for them. This morning, as we close in communion with one another, we need to let go of the things that Jesus is saying let go of, and we need to take hold of all that he has for us so that he can lead us in the mission to see New England one for him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had the Passover meal.